This morning's reading is, uh, can be found on page 1179, and it's from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 13. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Nick. Do keep that open uh, in front of you. Page uh, 1179. So the story so far, I guess, is worth saying, isn't it? Um, We're working our way through this remarkable letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the very earliest Christians uh, in the early Christian church, we think under house arrest in Rome in something like AD 60 or 61, uh, written to a group of Christians in Philippi, uh, a small uh, group, we think, of uh, some of the earliest Christians following Jesus. And he's writing to them as a friend, as the one who founded their church, as one who has been for them their key leader over the years, one that they've looked to for advice and for guidance and for leadership one who now can't be with them, one who now is having to depend on them. They've been sending him support. Um, As I've mentioned before, being in prison in those days involved relying on those outside of prison to supply you with food and with what you needed. And uh, he's concerned for them. He's writing to them uh, both with this sense of friendship and joy in their faith and their sense of partnership together in the good news of Jesus, but he's also writing to them with concern. And um, there seem to be twin concerns that run through this letter. On the one hand, he's concerned because he knows that opposition either is coming, has come, or will come to their faith in Jesus, and he wants them to stay steadfast, to stay firm in this good news they've discovered. But he's also concerned for them that they might be together, that they might be unified in Jesus. So as we have walked our way through what we call the first chapter, but I guess if you're just reading a letter, the start of what he's written to them, um, we've started back at the beginning of chapter one with Paul talking about them, who they are, their identity. He says, I'm a slave, you're saints, together. That simply means that we belong to Jesus. We belong to him, and therefore we want to live lives of generosity, of resilience, and of wisdom. He's then gone on to talk about what it means for him to be suffering for the good news of Jesus, and how in the midst of that suffering, he's found joy because he's able to say of God, God is able to rescue me. I pray that he will, but even if he doesn't, I know for a fact that he loves me. And then in Jesus, he's given everything for me. And then as he's talked about this good news of Jesus, as most especially, he's talked about what Jesus has done for them, giving up the glory of heaven 
for the darkness of this world, becoming a, a, a slave effectively for us, even to death. He says, because of what Jesus has done, and in the midst of what Jesus has done, and in the power of what Jesus has done, be together in this. Be partners together. Be companions in the faith. Be unified, because you belong together for him. Now, the reason I slightly labor that point is because the very first word of the couple of verses I want to focus on today, uh, verses 12 and 13, is the word, therefore. And the most memorable bit of advice I ever got with, about preaching from my preaching tutor was, um, if there's a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. There you go. Um, and it's true when you read in the Bible, not just preaching on it. If there's a therefore, ask what it's there for. Because actually, otherwise, you pile in, take a couple of verses and go, oh, let's read those. Whereas actually what Paul is doing is saying, therefore. In other words, look back, see where you've come from. Um, and where he's come from is actually another therefore. The few sentences before verse 12, um, you might say they start at verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him, that's Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So part of the therefore that he's about to go on to is he's about to say what he's going to say because Jesus has been exalted. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is the king of the universe. And one day as he looks ahead, he knows for certain every knee will bow before him. In other words, all things will be brought together under the rightful kingship of the one who's made all things and in whom all things hold together. But we have to remember that verse 9 has a therefore. We have to ask, well, what's that therefore? Therefore, and where it comes from is the start of that beautiful poem or hymn that Paul is either making up or quoting. And it talks about what Jesus does, if you like, before he's exalted to the throne that's rightfully his. And it talks there for about him humbling himself, giving himself for us. Verse 7, making himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave or a servant, being made in human likeness and became obedient, obedient even to death. In other words, what Paul is about to say to them and what we're about to hear flows out of the obedience and humility of Jesus and his exaltation to the throne. And it's worth pausing to say, actually, for the Christian, there is no part of the Christian life that doesn't have a therefore before it. It's very easy to talk about Christian faith in terms of the things we should do, the way we should live, the type of people we're meant to be. Turning the Christian faith effectively into a set of rules, a lifestyle, effectively a sort of choice we make to live a sort of way. And that, in general, is the way most people think of religion. Most people think of the Christian faith. You should live this way, live a Christian life, be a nice person, pray lots, go to church, give money to the poor, whatever it is. And the Bible doesn't say those things are wrong, but it says they always have a therefore at the beginning of them. In other words, the way we live looks back to something prior to it. Therefore, live this way. Therefore, be this sort of person. And what always comes before the therefore is always Jesus. His life and death and resurrection and ascension. Because of Jesus, therefore, live this way. Now, that's unique amongst all religions that you'll ever find, that actually the Christian faith is all about God stepping towards us in Christ and therefore us responding with the way that we live. Therefore, my dear friends, says Paul, 
as you have always obeyed, there's that obedience word again, we've already heard Jesus being described as the one who is obedient even to death, therefore, says Paul, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but that much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act to his good purpose. Now, in one sense, this um, uh, conversation that Paul is having with them, and this bit of the conversation goes back even um, further beyond that little hymn that we read. You could argue it goes back all the way to verse 27 of chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This little chunk of the letter, uh, Paul is basically saying to them, look, I'm not with you right now. I have been with you. I founded the church. I taught you how to live. You followed my example. I'm not with you now because I'm under house arrest in Rome. And with me gone, I need to remind you to live out your faith in a manner, as he says in verse 27, uh, that is worthy. In other words, that it fits with, is a fair reflection of the good news of Christ. Now I'm not with you you still need to live it out. And as Rachel was reminding us last week, part of what that looks like is for us to be unified in the good news of Jesus. We need to go on, as verse 12 says, obeying the good news, living out that good news, not just when Paul is there, but actually when he's not there. And like all of Christian behavior, what Paul wants to say to them is there is both a past and a future component to our present behavior. There is a therefore that looks back, and there is a for or a because that looks forward. We've had the therefore, the beginning of verse 12, and then we've got a for in verse 13 that looks forward. And I very simply want to simply... Um, locate where we are right now in the past of what Jesus has done, the therefore, and in the future of our confidence of what's to come. Looking back and looking forward enables us in the present to live out that obedience to Jesus. The past is very clear. Jesus, in our past, has lived and died and risen again for us. It was unpacked last week um, from verses 6 to 9. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He becomes like us, he becomes one of us. In our past, he's lived and died and risen again for us. And actually, that past, that thing that's been done for me, Jesus living and dying and rising again for me, gives me something to respond to. It's been done for me. I don't have to do anything more than has already been done for me. That therefore motivates the way that I live now. Because he's been obedient, I'm going to be obedient. Because he's humbled himself and served others, I'm going to serve others. But most of all, because he's lived and died and risen again, that I can be forgiven, that I can be part of God's family, I want to live it out. Part of the Christian faith is becoming who I already am. In that past, I've been made part of God's family. It's true. It's done. It's in my past. It's 
There's a big line drawn underneath it. It is finished. It is paid for. It is done. Therefore, I live today out of the truth of that. Uh, We've got friends who at the moment are in the process of um, uh, adoption. Uh, And there will be that moment in their life where the papers are signed and that child becomes part of their family. That will be a done deal, a line drawn. It is finished It's done. You now belong. And that child, from that point on, will be absolutely a member of their family. Done and dusted. Can't be changed. It is done. That's in the past. But the hope, the prayer, the desire, the longing, is that what that child will then be doing the rest of their childhood is living out what it means to belong to that family. They do belong, but they want to live it out. If that child never got to live with that family, if that child never got to eat meals with that family, learn what it is to have a a mummy and daddy that love them, whatever it is, actually that past would be of no consequence to them. They have to live it out. They have to respond to it. That past is the motivation for living in the present. So when you look at yourself in the mirror on a Monday morning, once we got over the shock, actually one of the things to remind yourself of is, I have a past that ought to motivate my present. Whatever you're doing on a Monday morning is not just an isolated moment in life, nor is it simply in the context of just the way you've lived in the past week or or weeks or months or years. You have a past that stretches back to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Who you are has a past that is Jesus-shaped, Jesus-given. The one who, being in the very nature of God, still humbled himself, became obedient even to death for you. That's Monday morning's truth. That's Tuesday morning's truth. That's an every day of the morning, every day's morning truth. We have a past motivation. But it's also true that what I live, how I live today can have a future confidence. I'm not just motivated by what Jesus has done for me in the past. I'm also shaped and motivated by the confidence that comes from knowing what will happen in the future. Verse 9, 10, and 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the, knee, the name that is above every name, that's in the past, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's in the future. That's what we look ahead to. There will come a day, says Paul, when Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. Right now, it doesn't feel like that, does it? Whether you're in work on Monday morning, going into college on Monday morning, whether you're having a coffee with a friend on Monday morning, whether you're at home on Monday morning, actually, life doesn't always feel like Jesus is on the throne of the universe. There's not a lot as we look around the world or our country today that makes us feel, yeah, that's true today. We can look back and say, well, I know it must be true because Jesus lived and died and rose again and ascended for me. But we need the confidence that comes from saying, I know that one day I will see this come fully to pass. There will come a day when God draws a line under all history and says enough is enough. When he puts all things right, when he wipes away every tear from every eye, when death itself will be brought to an end. The way I live today 
is to be motivated by the past with the confidence of what will happen in the future. And in the middle of it, well, how am I to live now? Well, what Paul seems to be saying is, you have to take responsibility for yourself whilst at exactly the same time recognizing that you can't do it by yourself. Let me say those two halves again. I think Paul is saying that in terms of living out of that past and that future, you and I have to take responsibility for our own faith, whilst at the same time recognizing that we can't and shouldn't imagine we can do it by ourselves. Listen to these few words in the middle of verses 12 and 13. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He's saying you need to press on with this. You need to take responsibility for yourself. You need to work hard at your salvation. We'll come back to what that means in a moment. For it is God who works in you. You know, that take responsibility at the same time as recognizing that it is God who's the one who works in you now. On the one hand, we're to work out our salvation. Now, our salvation, being saved, being rescued, also has, as we'd expect, a past, a present, and a future. I have been saved by what Jesus has already done for me on the cross. I've been put right with God. don't have to redo that every day. That's done. I belong to his family. I've been, been rescued, saved, forgiven. And it has a future. One day, I will enjoy the fullness of what that salvation looks like in practice. I get to be with Jesus. I get to see him face to face. This distance that I feel from God, those days when I wake up with my, a pit in my stomach and all the doubts crowding in and it's tough and it's hard. One day, I look forward to that day when I am fully and finally, if you like, saved. As I've been saved in the past, I'll be saved in the future. The question is, how do I work that out day by day? There is a present tense to being saved. There's a journey to be done. In one sense, I have been saved. It's been done for me once and for all. In another sense, I'm looking forward to the day when I will be saved. It'll be complete. And right now, I'm working through what's to come. I've used this illustration before, but the, the reason for that is I can't find a better one. Um, uh, one of, one uh, 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 Bible scholar has used this uh, illustration to just try and tease that out a little bit. Uh, it's talked about the, the D-Day landings in the Second World War. That actually on the day of those landings, that the, the outcome of the, the, the Second World War wasn't in doubt. Looking back, actually we realized that it was done and dusted because of those landings. That was the beginning of the end. And yet there was still in the future to come the final time when all the countries of Europe would be liberated, the war would be over, people would be able to celebrate in peace. And what happened in between those two was there was a lot of bloodshed. There was a lot of hard work to be done. That the occupation had to be rolled back. It had to be fought for inch by inch. The past was the past. It meant that the future was certain. But in between the two, there was a lot of hard work to be done. And I think there is something of that in the way that we live the Christian life. I look back on the cross and say, I am saved. God's rescued me. Jesus has died for me. My sin is forgiven. My future isn't in doubt. But I also recognize that 
There are days when I wake up, I feel a million miles from God. There are days when I look myself in the mirror, not just on a Monday morning, but a Sunday morning and any other morning in the week, and look at myself and think, gosh, I don't live this very well. I'm not very good at praying. I'm not very good with my patience. I'm not very good with my, my values. I'm not very good with my discipline. I'm not very good with my money or my time. Gosh, I've got a long way to go. And in the midst of it all, Paul says, you work it out. You work hard. Not because I've got to earn it. I know my future's certain. Jesus has already died for me. I don't have to make that happen. But because I'm on this journey with him. But I'm not having to do it on my own. Because, verse 13, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I work really hard, but it's God who works in me. Turn over the page, if you would, to a couple of verses that we'll come to briefly in a few weeks' time. Chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, where Paul says pretty much the same thing, but using a different illustration, if you like, a different set of language. Perhaps this helps. Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect. In other words, he's got the reality of what Monday morning feels like. Don't you ever think you're the only one whose faith can really hit rock bottom as you head into the week? So Paul says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold. In other words, I'm going to work hard at this. I'm going to press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Verse 14, I press on. I work at it. I'm going to work hard. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. So if you say to me, well, which is it then? Is it you working on your faith to grow in faith or is it God? The only appropriate Christian answer to that is yes. Is it you or is it God? Yes. Because it is you and it is God. If you want to know which is more important, I'd say, well, it's not quite the right question. If you want to know which comes first, that's very clear. That's grace. God in Christ came and lived and died, rose again, ascended into heaven before we'd even heard of him, before we even knew we needed rescued. God's rescue isn't a prize we win for being good. It's not a treat we can lose by being bad. It's a gift, simply a gift given in love. That's in my past. It's done and dusted. I am loved. I am rescued. I'm forgiven. I belong to his family. And its future is sure. My future is sure. I get the absolute knowledge that one day I get to live eternity with the one who loves me, who knows me from the inside out. But in between the two, I walk hand in hand with the God that I know in Jesus. By his spirit, he lives in me to work in me for his good purpose. So I work with him. Isn't it wonderful that God doesn't cut out the middleman? It'd be so much easier on one level, you'd imagine, for God just to do it and not involve me at all. Just as if you've ever worked with children, you know that it's far easier to do a job yourself than to get the child to help you and to work with you. Much easier, quicker, you know, less messy, less frustrating. But actually, if you want to build relationship with that child, and if the child is going to be part of it, and is to enter into it, and if it's to be fully theirs, then you work with them. Actually, most things in Christian theology 
have at least some light shed on them if we think in terms of parent-child, God, our perfect heavenly parent, us, a child with him. He works in us and with us for his good purpose. In a moment, we're going to both sing songs of worship but also share communion together. Communion itself has a past, a present, and a future. It looks back to the past when Jesus died for us and rose again. It looks ahead to the heavenly banquet that is surely ours in the life of the world to come. And right here in the present, as I receive bread or take a sip of wine or receive a prayer of blessing, I recognize that in the present, I receive from him by his spirit all that I need to live this faith out. So tomorrow morning, when you look in the mirror, once you and I have got over the shock of it, remember, you have a past that is sure, a future that is certain, and in the present, a God who by his spirit is with you as you work out your salvation. In fear and trembling, which in Paul's words is to do with the awe, the respect owed to the God who loves us. We don't do it alone. As John comes to lead us in a moment in worship, let's just pause to reflect. As we come to these songs in worship and as in a few minutes the children come and rejoin us as we head towards communion. Let's think about those three tenses of faith. The past that is done and dusted for us, that price that was paid on the cross for our forgiveness, for our new life. The future that is sure and certain. And in the midst of the messy chaos of this life, the stuff that is hard, the challenges, as Phil was telling us earlier, of, of making time, the effort it takes to grow in our faith, to remember that even in the midst of that, God by his spirit comes to us to work in us to his praise and glory.